We have arrived at chapter 4 of God's story. It's the final chapter of God's story and the longest chapter because this chapter contains the never-ending glory that those who trust Jesus will get to experience with Him forever. And so it is truly the longest chapter. And it's not easy to explain the end of the world as we know it. And so my friend Joe is going to read a whole chapter in God's Word dedicated to it. Thanks, Joe. This morning's scripture reading is from 2 Peter 3, verses 1 to 18. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by the and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people 
and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is God's word. Marge is right. The rapture isn't coming. There haven't been any ominous signs. It's just not working out, Barry. Yeah, I guess I better study for the police exam again. Good luck. You too. Judgment day is at hand. All right, everybody. Air up with a rapture buddy who will watch your back through all eternity. Okay, guys, get ready. We're just seconds away. Six, five, four. I'm so proud of you, homie. Two, one! Goodbye, stupid Earth! <laughs> that appears to be some delay! Huh? My watch must be running fast. Wait for it. 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 Ha <laughs> ha! Life goes on! <laughs> yeah, it's getting close to 2,000 years since Jesus lived the perfect life we could not, died the death we deserve, and rose from the dead so that those who are willing could be right with him. And then he ascended into heaven. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, his apostles looked around, and an angel showed up. And the angel said, why do you stare? This Jesus will return the same way in which you saw him leave. So what's taking so long? Where's, where's God? That was 2,000 years ago. The clip we just watched was obviously a parody on the many so-called prophets who have tried to predict the timing of God's final and decisive intervention into history. They've just got it wrong many, many times. And no matter what you think of the Simpsons, per se, or mainstream media in general, it's kind of immaterial. But when Nelson, that character at the end, says, well, huh, life goes on, he is speaking for many skeptics and scoffers. I have a friend on island who grew up in a Jehovah's Witness uh, family, and he rightly rejected that, that cultish distortion of, of Scripture that Jehovah's Witnesses make that deny the deity of Christ, that Jesus is truly God. So he rightly rejected that, but but he remains a skeptic, a a scoffer towards Christianity. I remember him saying to me once, hey, you know, since Jesus came, the so-called God has kind of just been watching history. He hasn't really gotten involved in it. So for my friend, life goes on without a knowledge of God, without seeing his need for a Savior. And so we get to verse 4 of our reading, which sort of repeats the same objection. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our fathers fell asleep, in other words, ever since our dads died, all things are continuing as they were since the beginning of creation. So for these skeptics and scoffers, it's been over 30 years since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. For these particular skeptics and scoffers in 2 Peter 3, they were likely babies when all these things surrounding Jesus happened. Their parents have passed, and they're wondering, even back then, What's taking so long? 
Where really is God? Life goes on as it's always been, and so I will go on as I've always been. That's the, that's the rationale for the people who think that God has gone. Peter responds in, in a few different ways to this line of thinking. Actually, this whole chapter is Peter's response to people who are thinking that way. Okay, God is no longer here. He's not coming back. Where is he? So life goes on. So Peter responds to that. He responds in three different ways. He appeals to history. He appeals to need. He appeals to patience. But why does he make all these appeals? Because he wants to warn people that the final chapter of God's story will arrive at any moment. Are you ready for his final and decisive intervention into human history? Are you going to be ready for it? The final chapter of God's story is this, that Jesus will return to right every wrong and make things even righter. That Jesus will return, he's going to right every wrong and make things even righter. To make this point, Peter appeals to history. That God's intervened before, so he's going to do it again. Peter uses two examples, the creation and the flood. Right, so in verse 5, Peter's referring to day 3 of creation, when land emerges from water and starts to then get watered so it can produce life. It can sprout things and make them grow. In verse 6, Peter refers to a major flood recorded in Genesis in which God presses the reset button on humanity and creation Starts over. In the midst of this uh, scoffing and skepticism people often have about God actually still being involved, actually caring about us, actually intervening into history, sometimes it's good to remind ourselves and one another that God has intervened in history. If you think about it, abolitions of slavery, women's suffrage, civil rights movements have all been started by Christians. By people who who stood up because they saw this isn't right and God has called me to stand up for these things. So in all these ways, God has intervened in our history in the last 2,000 years as well. It's equally helpful to remind one another of God's intervention in our history, with our story. Or better yet, ask them how God has intervened in their story. All with the goal of awakening one another to the reality that God will decisively intervene again. Finally, and like a thief, we're told in this passage, right? We will not be expecting it. Peter appeals also to need, that we have a a need for every wrong to be made right. Right? We all sense this. We all know we live in a broken world. We live in an unjust world. And it starts in our own hearts. That line between right and wrong cuts right here first. But we see it all around us. What do we do in this passage that we just read? What do we make of all this fire? Some of our youth, you might not know this, draw sermon notes. And they sometimes show me after the sermon what they've drawn. And my guess is, if they paid attention to 2 Peter 3 and what we read, there'd be a lot of flames on their paper this morning. Because there's just a lot of fire in this passage. I remember growing up, my grandmother telling me, don't worry, it's all going to burn anyway, she used to say. And she got that idea from here, from 2 Peter 3. But is Peter suggesting that everything in heaven and earth will be totally destroyed, including heaven and earth itself? Is this fire destructive such that God will again make ex nihilo out of nothing, a new earth and a new heaven? Is that what's happening here? I think there's actually a couple problems with that idea. That it's going to be a brand spanking new heaven and earth. 
Number one, this earth has a future as our home. We're told this in Revelation 21. Heaven, the new Jerusalem, will come down here. God will dwell with His people, we're told in Revelation 21. Another gracious act of God. Jesus has already come, and Jesus will come back permanently to be with His people. Which makes sense with the whole getting new resurrection bodies. He's going to take our existing bodies and glorify them to make them like His indestructible body. Doesn't mean brand new. It means the idea like good is new. You know, like when you maybe have taken your car in living here in Cayman to get a to get a paint job. It's rusting on your roof or beneath. That's happened to me where I had to within the first year of owning my uh, this Ford Explorer, it was rusting on top of the roof, so I had to get a, a paint job. And the guy came out and said, "Look, it's good as new," and it was. It was as good as new. I think that's the idea with the earth here, and what God will do. He's going to use fire to make it as good as new. I think the the kind of fire that is being talked about here in 2 Peter 3 is a purging kind of fire. It's going to purge and refine away the impurities of this earth, of creation. This fits better with our passage where Peter's already mentioned a purging or cleansing flood, hasn't it? The Noah flood. This fits well with other scriptures like Hebrews 12, 26 and 27, where God promises he will shake Heaven and earth like a rug. I, I go outside all the time, beat our rug against a tree. I shake it so that what's pure remains, right? The rug. And all the, all the dirt and junk and whatever else is there falls out. Hebrews 12, 26 and 27 says, God promised he will shake heaven and earth like a rug for the removal of what is shaken or the, what cannot be shaken will remain, right? All the good stuff, all the righteousness, all that is good and pure will remain behind. This also fits well, this idea of purging impurities, purging unrighteousness. It fits well with Peter's first letter. Peter's first letter, he opens by saying, hey, I know you guys are going through a lot of suffering, a lot of hardship. He's talking to a bunch of scattered churches. And he says this hardship is like fire. It is refining your faith. It, it, is, it is burning away the impurities of your faith to make it more like gold, more true. The difference is that Peter's first letter is all about refining individuals. Whereas Peter's second letter, right before he's probably going to die, it's about God refining entire humanity. Look at verse 7 with me, if you would, chapter 3. But this, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It's not the refining of the ungodly. It's the destruction of the ungodly. That is why Peter appeals. We hear him appeal to God's patience in verse 9, right? The next refining will include the destruction of anyone who is not totally righteous before God. Can you say that about yourself? Totally righteous before God. If not, you are why God is waiting. You are why God is being patient. He doesn't want any to perish, but as it says here, all to come to repentance. That just means to to turn from trusting in yourself and your own record of doing what's right to trusting Jesus who died to freely offer you his record of doing right. I've compared the score before to like a golf scorecard, right? And you actually score 110 for 18 holes. Jesus has a perfect score. I don't know what you want to make that, a 58 or an 18, 
whatever it might be. Is he hole in one everything? I don't know. Does he go for eagles and birdies? No one knows. But that's not my point of my analogy. An analogy is this. Are you going to rely on your own scorecard before God someday? Your own record of doing right. When you could have Jesus' scorecard. Perfection. Because when the next fire comes, when Jesus returns, there's going to be destruction of all who are not totally right before him. And I have to admit, this language of fire, it's, it's ferocious. It's strong. right? I mean, Jesus first came. John the Baptist says, there goes the Lamb of God. When Jesus returned, he is going to be the Lion of Judah. That is going to be the picture of his return. The heavens as we know them will pass away, it says here, with a roar. There will be dissolving. There will be melting. There will be burning. These are some of the adjectives and verbs described here. And such lion language indicates to us how deeply sin has permeated our lives, our society, our thinking. That God has to bring such fire to melt so much away from this earth. So much of the results of the fall away from this earth. Let me suggest, though, why I think this fiery purge is actually very, very good. I mean, it's fearful, right? This, at any moment, he could return with fire. But let me tell you why it's so good. It's this, that Jesus' final judgment, it frees us. Jesus' final judgment, free, what does it free us for? It frees us to forgive and show mercy and show compassion while an all-knowing God takes care of dealing out justice. We, we can trust that we have an all-knowing God who sees injustice done to us, who sees the sickness we endure, who sees that we have a harder life than the other person sitting next to me on the aisle right now. This past week, I reread um, Night by Elie Wiesel. I don't know if you've ever heard of this book. Uh, Wiesel won a, a Nobel Peace Prize for the book. Wiesel was a Hungarian Jewish teenager when he and his family were deported to the Auschwitz concentration camp in Germany during World War II. Bazell lost his mother, lost his sister. He watched his own dad die. Arguably in this critical portion of the book, though, is after he's just arrived at Auschwitz, and he's watched children go into the furnace. And that's when the long night begins, hence the title of his book, The Long Night, where he says his God was murdered. The God he grew up believing as a pious Jewish man was dead, murdered. And Bazell actually visited our university when I was going to school there. And I got a chance to interact with him in kind of a small classroom setting. And I asked him about his feelings about God being murdered. What are, what are your feelings now about that when you reflect back? And he said, actually, I believe I've changed my perspective. I've started to believe that God is alive. Then someone asked a follow-up question. Does that mean you no longer believe in a biblical idea of hell? So here's Bazell's comments, and I wrote them down. They were in our school newspaper. They were so good. He said, actually, quite the opposite. I believe in hell all the more. He says, I, I cannot know the heart of every soldier in that concentration camp, whether it be good or vile. He said, furthermore, the atrocious acts done in the name of justice showed me that the only, there's only one being capable of meeting out justice. He says, but that frees humanity to show mercy. It was a brilliant answer. And, and unknowingly, Vizel was really quoting what Paul says, paraphrasing what Paul says in Romans 12, 19-20. Listen to how similar these words are. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give your enemy something to drink. So for us to to refrain from responding with hurt, with gossip, with slander, because you've been hurt, you've been gossiped about, you've had slander set about you, we must believe a day is coming when God put all the wrongs to right again. Jesus will return to make things right. And not only to make things right, but to make things even righter than they were in the garden. Remember the first chapter of our story? We saw the beauty and what seemed to be the perfection of this garden. Where Adam and Eve lived without shame. And that could have been humanity. But through all that we've gone through, through what Jesus has done for us in redeeming us, and one day coming, one day coming back again, there's something, there's some glories even better than what we would have had in the garden. Let me just share with you three of these glories. One is this, that what we do now matters for later. You remember in, in chapter 1 of God's story, God commanded we, we collaborate with what he's created, that we work in the garden in which he has put us. When Jesus returns, he's not going to bring a giant eraser to wipe everything away, and we just return back to the garden. Actually, Jesus is bringing a city. That's interesting, isn't it? We start with the garden, Jesus is going to bring a city, the New Jerusalem it's called. Why a city? Wouldn't we want to go back to the garden? It sounds a lot nicer. Let me tell you why a city. The difference between a garden and a city is culture. It's the result of us having collaborated with what God has created to benefit humanity and to glorify Him. And some of that stuff may just stick around. We're not told what this looks like. We don't know that what of what we do, and which products are going to survive the fiery purge. But, but there will be a connection between what we do here and what we do in heaven. In his book, Becoming Worldly Saints, Michael Whitmer suggests that what will survive the fiery purge is our collaborative know-how of learning how to produce things, learning how to create things, learning how to teach things to other people as we live on this earth. That stuff will survive. And so he says, you know, a particular tree or house may not survive, but how to grow healthy trees and how to make a sturdy house may survive. Quoting Isaiah 65, 21, which says, The inhabitants of this new earth will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat the fruit. It comes from those things. In other words, there will still be production in heaven. We will still be doing just without all the frustration of sin. We'll be creating new and glorious things. Imagine how glorious. Michelangelo is going to do a lot better. Johann Sebastian Bach is going to do a lot better. You're going to do a lot better than what you do. A lot of people think heaven's just going to be sitting up there with a halo and playing a harp. Not at all. We're going to be producing and creating even better. Even better. Here's what else is, is better and righter than even Eden. We get indestructible bodies. God doesn't restore us to a perfect body without the warts and the wrinkles and the baby fat. It's a glorified body. A glorified body. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, playfully pointed out that Adam and Eve were were merely what's called passe peccare, which is Latin for Adam and Eve were able not to sin, but glorified human beings will be not able to sin. No passe peccare. Does that make sense? 
Adam and Eve were able not to sin, right? But they had that ability to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we will be not able to sin, which is righter than Eden, right? We don't don't have to worry about that temptation anymore. It will not be there. A third righter thing about the time when Jesus returns and, and we're restored in final redemption is God's permanent and physical presence. The story of the Bible, guys, is the story of Emmanuel. We sing about it at Christmas time, but it is the story of the Bible. Emmanuel, God with us. Every time God appears, he seems to stick around a little longer. Right? So, so in the garden, he comes and goes, walking in the garden. He's a pillar and a cloud leading the exodus of God's people. He next appears as Jesus Christ and lives amongst us for 30 years. And he is present now invisibly by the Holy Spirit. And now it's been a couple thousand years. Finally, he's going to descend on earth to be with us permanently and physically forever. That is so much better. So Jesus not only makes wrongs right, he makes things even righter than anything else we've read in the Bible or even imagined. His return is imminent. It it, it can come at any time, even as I speak. According to verse 10, everything done, everything done, while living on this earth will be exposed. You see that? So Peter asks this question, if everything on earth, everything we've done in this flesh is going to be exposed, Peter asks the question, how then shall we live? Jesus is going to return, how then shall we live? I'm paraphrasing, he says it this way in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? How should we live? What kind of person should we be? In light of his imminent return, Peter lists off, he lists off a host of responses. He says, we should live as if Jesus will personally find me. As if he's going to show up one day with whatever we're doing, and he's going to say, hey, <laughs> Right? And what will we be doing? How will I be found? How do I want to be found? I want to be found without spot or blemish, we're told here, right? At peace with God. How should we live? We should live to make disciples. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, we see in verse 15, right? In other words, count the patience of our Lord. That is the time we have now. Count that time as opportunities for salvation. Stand firm in the gospel, verse 17. See that, right? That the idea of not blending in the comfortable forms of Christianity, which are so prevalent, right? You can not only know Jesus, but you can also experience the good life and the comfortable life. Verse 18, getting to know Jesus better, getting to know His grace better while we still live on this earth. Also, while we live, hungering and thirsting for the righteousness to come. That, that's what it means to to wait, to wait, as Peter repeats over and over in verses 12, 13, and 14. To be like Jesus says in the Beatitudes, to to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to wait for it to come, to long for that time to come when everything wrong is made right, when all the injustices are made right, when all the hurts and all the pains and all the struggles because of sin are made right. So there's all these things. I listed off five things. So I recognize this is a pretty long list, and I've been... You know, we could spend a Sunday examining each. So what I've been trying to do this week is think of a picture, a sort of attitude of heart and mind that sums up all of what Peter says is our role, my role, 
and anticipating Jesus' glorious and any time now return. And so the Holy Spirit gave me a picture that I couldn't get out of my mind of how to summarize how we should live. And believe me, I tried to get it out of my mind. You may have noticed, or at least you hope you noticed, that I uh, made a rather bold wardrobe choice today. Um, some of you loved me enough to tell me and question my sanity. Some of you just were nice and were like, oh, that's that's really interesting shirt you have. That's right. Okay. Uh, it's all, all polyester, and uh, if you can't see this close enough, it's got this sort of um, pastel uh, horse riding print repeated all over it like, a, like an ugly wallpaper, as someone pointed out to me earlier. Uh, and, and I can't even, I know there's going to be people listening on our podcast and on the radio later to this. I cannot describe to you how, how ugly this looks. And I've had to re- reapply in a purse print three times since 5.30 this morning when I began wearing it. It is incredibly hot, incredibly uncomfortable. I mean, have any of you guys wore polyester before? Raise your hand. Have you ever wore polyester on purpose? Okay. Less hands probably for that one. How awful is it to wear, right? I mean, it's, I remember the first time I wore it as a young lad. I was going to a 1970s-themed, disco-themed, if you will, dance with my girlfriend. And uh, there was a trip to Goodwill followed by a last-minute trip to Kmart, and I was already dressed to kill when I walked into Kmart, and I was there picking up a few items, and I could just hear people snickering at me. I was an insecure young teenager, right? They're just, I mean, heard comments about, oh, the Brady Bunch movie already came out. Come on, buddy, right? You know, things like that. I was sweating even before I got into the dance. And if you've ever worn polyester, you know your main goal is to keep it away from permanent skin contact. Because once it does, you're itching all night. You are just itching, you're scratching, you're just like, get me out of this. So that night, that dance, and before that night, I stood out, and I never got used to the feel all night. My role in this part of God's story is this. My role is I consider the glory to come, and Jesus' return, my role is this, to live like you have on polyester. Stand out and never get used to the feel. Live like you have on Paul. Stand out and never get used to the field. And you may look at me now and think, I could never do what Ryan's doing. One, I, it, I'd be that uncomfortable and I would stick out like a sore thumb. And I wonder how much we approach life the same way. Does our trust in Jesus make a tangible difference to our lifestyle and the way we look and the way we talk to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, such that we actually stick out as being a little bit different? I just know, guys, in my life, I want so much to be comfortable. I want for my home life to be sort of controlled and peaceful. When I go outside of my home, I want my life to be full of people just encouraging me and affirming me and respecting me. I want that for myself. I I like to be comforted with the good life I see around me, especially when I walk around Kamana Bay. I'm like, yes, nice. I want that. It's so easy to live in a place like Cayman and say, I could get used to this, right? Jesus will return, and he will find me, and he will find you. Will I blend in with everyone else, or will I stand out as holy, without spot or blemish, at peace with God and spreading the peace of God through the gospel? Do I listen when the Holy Spirit says, Ryan, give lavishly, spend yourself on this person, go the extra mile for someone who's asking you to walk one, go two? Do I listen and get uncomfortable for Jesus' sake. 
Will I draw near to Jesus, waiting for him, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, getting to know him and his grace towards me even better when I live on this earth, so that my standing out to other people isn't fake, isn't religiosity, it's genuine. People can see the difference in my life and ask about it, just as people saw the difference in my shirt today and pants and asked about it. So should our lives be. Robbie Robbins was a U.S. Air Force Force pilot during the first Iraqi war. That was the one involving the liberation of Kuwait. After Robbie's 300th mission, he was surprised to be granted permission to immediately gather all his crew, all his men, and fly that plane home. After touching down stateside, they drove all night, and his buddies dropped him off at the house just at sunup, just when the sun was rising. And there was a big banner across his garage that said, Welcome home, Dad. And he, and he thought to himself, how did they know? There, were, there was no warning. No one tipped them off. No one called. The crew themselves had to leave unexpectedly, so they couldn't have made contact either. So Robbins related it this way. He said, when he walked in the house, the kids, they were about half-dressed for school. But they, they said, Daddy, they gave him a hug, and immediately they, they went to their cards and the signs they prepared, which were already there by the door. He said uh, his wife, Susan, came running down the hall. She looked terrific. Hair fixed, he said, makeup on, and a crisp yellow dress. And he just asked her the question, how did you know? And listen to how she responds. She said, I didn't. He said, we knew you'd be home one of these days. We knew you tried to surprise us. So we woke up every day and got ready. Got ourselves ready. Every day they stood out. Every day they refused to blend in. They never got used to life without their father, without their dad. As Jesus is returning with a flamethrower, he will burn away cancer so that radiation and chemotherapy no longer have to burn you. He will burn away desires that you know to be perverse, but you just can't stop feeling them and thinking about them. He will burn away injustices small and large, done to you. He will burn away religious superiority and self-righteousness, twisted motives and judgmental thoughts. Those will be gone. He will burn away lust for money, for flesh, for power, that gets stuck like, like glitter onto something otherwise good, good things we, we do, good things we think, good things we see. And if we've trusted Jesus, if you hide yourself in Jesus, He will burn away all these impurities without burning you. This return, guys, will happen at any time. So let's get dressed and ready to be found by him because we will stand out. It will feel uncomfortable. But when he finds me, I want to hear, well done. Let's pray. Jesus, help us respond the way you would call us to respond to your fiery and ferocious return. For some of us, Lord, this morning, it is a word of warning that God is actually waiting on us. He's being patient with us. For some of us, we're we're the ones He is waiting for to turn from our life of relying on self to a life of relying on Jesus. So I pray this morning for the courage for such folks who, who, who see that God could return at any time and who want to depend on Him to depend on Jesus, they would now turn and trust in Jesus. All they have to do, all you have to do is trust your life to Jesus. And for those of us who've already hidden 
in Jesus, who've hidden our lives in Jesus, who've trusted Jesus. God, help us live such lives that we stand out like polyester, that we, we stand out, we never get used to the feel, that we have a closeness to you that would produce holiness from the inside out, that we would desire to share your word, your gospel with others, even if it makes us look different. That we never get so used to this world and all the comforts and all the money and all the influence, all the pats on the back, that we no longer be able to hear your spirit say, here I am, listen to me. Spend radically, give of yourself in this way. Rely on me even more in your life. Because God, one day we really do want to hear well done when you return. You're going to find us. So help us, God, please. Produce in us holiness so we'll stick out. So others might ask too, hey, why is your life so different? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.